Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Uh, step three, I've admitted that I have a struggle that I can't overcome without God. I've taken that painful but necessary step of acknowledging the breadth and impact of my sin. And now it comes time to understand the origin, motive, and history of my sin. Now this is where we just ask the question, why, why, why? Why do I do this? Why, why, why? I, this just, I'm so sick of it. I want to be free. I want to be done. I know it's not going to satisfy. It drives me crazy. Why do I keep doing this? And this is a tricky question. Because there's almost two sides that we can fall off on. On one side, if we answer the why question with almost anything that starts with because, it sounds like we're blame shifting. It sounds like we're putting it off on what somebody else is not doing. But at the same time, if there's an absence of any why, it just feels like we should be able to stop it. You know, Bob Newhart style, stop it. This seminar should have been over 55 minutes ago. Stop it! But there wouldn't be this many people in the room if we could do that. And so we begin to explore the why question. And Gary and Mona Shriver... Uh, they at least, they take us away from a direction that we don't need to go. Uh, they say adultery, I would say sexual sin in general, is an equal opportunity sin. It transcends social standing, intelligence, age, race, religion, and spiritual maturity. Uh, there is no sexual sin profile. Pastors fall and pagans fall. Christians fall and non-Christians fall. Men fall women fall. And the mindset that I don't want to admit that I am one of them is often why we don't confess and get the help that we need. And often that shame that doesn't want to admit that I am one of them is a form of prejudice that just adds to my moral blindness. Because I don't want to admit that I could struggle with that. And quite honestly, it wouldn't be in Scripture as much as it is if it wasn't a pervasive human problem. And if Scripture talks about it that much, it is something that we as a church, not just Summit Church, but as a church at large, must become more comfortable talking about. And if we admit it, it's not just the church who struggles to talk about this. When you look at the AA, NA, SA groups, the one group that winds up being off in the corner by itself, least talked about, kind of hush-hush, is the SA. Uh, the sexual addicts group. Uh, but again, that is what part of what makes this sin so particularly ensnaring. Now, uh, Mark Lassar talks about something here. He says, fantasy can produce chemicals called chattochelamines. Again, say it fast, everybody think you know what you're saying. Uh, in the pleasure centers of the brain that positively alter mood and even have a narcotic-like effect. 
The addict then uses these effects to escape unpleasant emotions, to change negative feelings to positive feelings, and even to reduce stress. In, in our day and age, one of the questions that we cannot get around is the chemical imbalance biology question. Uh, and if, if we look at it just from a purely biological spot, uh, we would say it's not just the uh, chattachalamines. It's adrenaline, epinephrine, dopamine, all of these are tied to uh, arousal in the sexual experience. Uh, this is what I found to be very humorous. When you look at ADD, the leading, one of the leading chemical theories for ADD is that it is caused by a dopamine deficiency. Okay, Not enough dopamine, ADD. One of the leading theories to sexual sin is that we become dopamine addicted. The catechylamines are a class of dopamine. Now, if that was true, there would be a lot less Ritalin in our schools. Our kids would be totally focused, straight A, across the board. There is no way that the percentage of children can be ADD because of dopamine deficiency, and the percentage of kids who are looking at pornography and dopamine addicts, those overlap way too much for the biggest thing to be going on to be chemical. Now, does that mean we dismiss this? No. I think it is very helpful for us to understand that there are strong physiological things that go on in the arousal cycle that when we begin to pull away from sex that we should not have been a part of, that we're going to go through something that feels like withdrawal. But it doesn't mean that there's a pill that's going to make it better. We're going to have to physically and morally detox. And detox is a very painful, unpleasant experience. Let's understand why it is as uncomfortable as it is, but let's not confuse and somehow blame shift to our bodies to say this is why we're doing it. Um, it Joshua Harris takes us where we need to go with that. He says each of us is unique, our history, our background, and how we are tempted. But it helps me, and I would say immensely, to remember my eyes are actively obeying my heart. My eyes do not have a mind of their own. It, and so when it comes to biology, my eyes obey my heart. The flirty words that I speak obey my heart. Luke 6.45, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. This reveals me. Now he does say each of us is unique in how we're tempted. And when you go through this section of material, uh, we're going to take you through some things to hopefully help you learn some of your history and how it may impact uh, your struggle with sexual sin. Uh, you're going to be asked about, how did you first learn about sex? Was it presented to you as something that was clean and holy and good, a gift from God for a specific context that was meant to make your life more rich and full? Or was it presented as something dirty and forbidden? Well, that impacts how we think about sex. What was your first sexual experience? Uh, well, the first time we do anything, it's what we know about that. And so some of our initial experiences can be very shaping. What was your family history related to sex and affection? You know, somebody who grew in a very uh, closed, quiet, restricted expression family that didn't get a lot of affirmation and touch and things like that, uh, the type of struggle that they have may be different. 
What is your personal style of relating? That impacts. Now again, part of what we have to remember there, in fantasy, everything bends to our preference. And there's a whole lot of literature out there that says that's what a relationship do. A relationship should meet every need. Whoever you're with should learn to do whatever it is that you most enjoy. And that self-centered approach to those relationships often gets fed here. But our personal style is something that's very important for us to consider and how we are going to be a sexually pure person. Because we're going to be a sexually pure person with our personality. How do we use time and stress? Uh, You're not going to have a healthy sex life in an unhealthy life. If the rest of your life is unhealthy, if you're trying to cram 250 hours into a 168 hour week, if you are driven to please people, if whatever you use to motivate and drive yourself is not healthy, you are not going to have a healthy sex and attraction life in an unhealthy life. There's no way that we can slice the pie and just deal with the sex slice. What is your ongoing sexual history? Again, that's in the full disclosure. What meaning do you give to sex? And in my opinion, that is one of the biggest influences that we want to understand. And we'll touch on that in several times. Now the question is, what do we do with this kind of evaluation when we get to talking about our history? Because some counseling approaches says this is all there is to it, that if we understand this, we just go deeper and deeper into that, and somehow as we understand more, that sin is just going to go away. Usually approaches like that don't even call it sin. And then there's others who say this is completely useless, we don't need to do that, just stop it. You know, whether they're Bob Newhart or not. Um, it, um, it does help us to understand this. It's, it's kind of like that aha moment. When I realize that my upset stomach is caused by gluten intolerance. By the way, I never knew gluten tasted so good until you try to eat things that are gluten-free. I think it should be the third shaker. Salt shaker, pepper shaker, gluten shaker. It's that good. Um, Just a tidbit. That's free. Um, But it's like that moment when I realize that my constant fatigue is caused by sleep apnea. Now, it... Understanding that doesn't remove the struggle, but it does give me the motivation to continue on when I thought nothing else was going to make a difference, that this was something I was just going to have to live with the rest of my life, be that upset stomach, sleeplessness, or lust. When we begin to see our history, it helps us. Now, uh, Tim Chester takes us another place. Uh, And this is about that meaning that we give to sex. He says, it's not difficult to see how porn feeds off of these cultural expectations. It creates a fantasy that perfectly matches each of our fears. If you fear failure, then porn promises success. You always get the woman or man. If you fear rejection, then porn promises approval. Women or men worship you. If you fear powerlessness, then porn promises potency. Men or women are under your power. Hear me. Lust is a sleazy salesman. It promises you whatever you want and never delivers on its promises. And this brings us to that area of motive. Understanding the history, origin, and motive of my struggle. And oftentimes with sexual sin, we just skip over motive. We don't use that language. The language that we tend to use with sexual sin is the language of trigger. Now I would say... 
motive and trigger are two sides of the same coin. But we tend to look at them as just the trigger and not something that is attached to our heart. I'm going to pop through 19 here. Uh, all of this is in your notebook. It's something that you would have to think about at a, more, at a slower and more reflective pace to get what you need. But just begin to hear the big picture. If my trigger is boredom, then my motive is that I'm using sin as my joy. Sin becomes my entertainment. It builds an appetite. It fuels the temptation. If my trigger is loneliness, then sin is my friend. Sin calls to me, tell me your troubles. And I'm glad to unload my burden. If my trigger is stress, then I use sin as my comforter. I pray to my sin instead of praying to God. When life gets hard, I go to my computer or I call my secretary. I don't cast my burdens upon Him because I know He cares for me. If my trigger is frustration, then I'm using sin as my peace. Sin is treated as an oasis. Anything that gets between me and my sin is viewed as an enemy. If my trigger is fatigue, then I'm using sin as my source of life. And it works. There is an adrenaline rush that comes with sexuality. And, and I can use that like a drug to pick me up and get me going. If my trigger is feeling hurt, then sin is my refuge. Not only provides about as much protection as a child pulling their sheets over their head, but there's times when we'll take it. If my trigger is betrayal, then I'm using sin as my revenge. This is a little poetic, but blinded by pain, we try to use pain to conquer pain, but we only multiply pain. But when we use, when we use sin as revenge, because our trigger is betrayal, that's what we do. If my trigger is bitterness, then sin is my justice. It's just a slow version of revenge that nurses my wounds. I treat sin as if it has some kind of healing quality. If my trigger is opportunity, then I'm merely using sin as my pleasure. It's my default recreation. It's my preferred hobby. It's, it's entertainment. If my trigger is rejection, then my motive is that I'm using sin as comfort. And culturally, we often talk about a fear of rejection as if it's a neutral thing. And at that point, it is so easy for us to become the victim of our own sin. If my trigger is failure, then I use sin as my success. In a fantasy world, I always win. If my trigger is success, then sin is my reward. I use sin to motivate. It's what I say, if I just finish this project, if I get this done, then I'll reward myself with pornography or time with somebody I shouldn't be with. If my trigger is entitlement, then I view sin as what I deserve. It's the measure of a good day. How else am I going to get my needs met? If my trigger is a desire to please, then sin is my affirmation. It's easy to please a, sin, a porn star or an adultery partner. They have a vested interest in making you happy. If it's time of day, then my motive is that I'm using sin as a pacifier. It's just kind of part of the nest of my life that sin makes to make it seem essential. If it's location, then sin is my escape. I can be there and not be there at the same time. I can listen to something unpleasant or annoying and it just becomes Charlie Brown's teacher in the background. Wah, 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 wah. And I am 
somewhere I shouldn't be. If, if my trigger is a negative thought life, then sin is my silencer. In the fantasy, I'm always desired. I see myself through the eyes of this other person or the eyes of this story. Again, in that sense, it becomes very gripping because sin becomes my Lord. When Jesus is my Lord, I see myself through His eyes. When I use sin as my silencer to make things feel better about me, I see myself through the eyes of my sin and the lies that it tells me and even the flattery affirmation that it gives me becomes part of where I am willing to serve it. If just being in public is my trigger, then sin is my carnival. Fantasy becomes fueled by this hypersexualized interpretation of my surroundings. And then finally, if weakness is my trigger, moments when I just don't feel like I'm adequate, that I measure up, then sin is my power. It gives me this facade of strength. It provides me this veneer of significance. And what I hope you can see is that all of that is salt water. We hear it, and at moments it is lapping at our feet, and we are thirsty for real relationship and to worship the one true God. But because that seems off limits, because we don't understand how to access it, we begin to drink the salt water, and the salt water makes us thirstier, and we want more and more of it, and soon we're trapped, and we feel desperate like a victim of our own sin. And sin is a sleazy salesman who will promise you whatever you want and never follows through on his promises. Now to take that a little further, uh, Harry Schomburg is helpful. He says, we see something, a person or a fantasy, uh, we think it will change our situation. Our deceitful heart buys into a false and empty promise, the, pro- the promise of relief, of acceptance, of fulfillment. Once the heart, uh, once deceived, Once the deceived heart believes the promise, it conceives a sin that leads to death. Basically, what he's doing here is unpacking James 1, 14 to 15 for us. That we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires. Those 19 things and other things that we could add to the list. We are tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires. And when we buy into that, it gives birth to sin. And sin grows into death. And that, that is what Scripture tells us as a warning will happen every time. Now, uh, it, let's move to a quote here from Steve Gallagher uh, that I think will really begin to make sense at this point. He says, Those who have experienced the unquenchable flames of burning lust can understand why the fathers of the early church regarded the worst aspect of hell to be that a person is left to his own lust with no possibility of satisfying them. Now I want to use a picture, a story here. My advice to you is don't try to guess where I'm going, just enjoy the story for a minute. Uh, When I was in college, I worked a Christian sports camp that was called, usually you get a bat out like this in a story and people talk about whacking people over the head for what they're doing. We're not going to do that. Um, But I worked a Christian sports camp with 4th through 8th graders. And I was the baseball coach. Loved the game of baseball. And as a part of our uh, time in the sports clinic, we would give devotions. And, you know, you're looking for creative ways to get the kids bought in before they know they're bought in. And the Adirondack uh, is what we would use, uh, what I would use for a particular devotion. And at the beginning of the week, I would tell them, guys, 
This is the reward that I'm going to give to whoever is the fastest, the strongest, the best, the person who pays me the most attention, the person who encourages their teammates, the person who I see giving it everything they got, every drill, paying attention, learning, showing the most improvement throughout this entire week. Do you want it? You know, you just talk really fast without taking a breath, and kids will be with you. Oh, they don't even know what the bad is. They go, Adirondack, oh, and they all start yelling. It's like Braveheart or something. Um, it, and so we go through the week, and they do drills, and I just stop the drill and make them yell, and they love it, and it got them to do everything I wanted them to do really well. And for a coaching technique, it was great. It was probably manipulation. Shouldn't do it. I'm sorry. Um, but we'd get to Thursday, and we'd start the practice with some running drills, and I'd call the kids over. So, all right, we're going to give out the Adirondack. Who wants it? You know, they're all yelling and chattering. And I'd pick a kid. And I'd say, come here. And I'd hand them the bat. And I'd say, now, here's what I want from you. You have to hold this bat over your head for the rest of practice. You cannot put it down with the exception of when you are doing a drill. At that moment, you may select one person. You may hand them the bat as soon as you finish that drill, fielding the ball, throwing it to first base. You are to take the bat back and have it over your head. Do you understand? That was mean. Now, I said something else. At any moment during practice that you decide this is not something that you want, all you have to do is say my name. Coach, I will stop whatever I am doing. Mid-drill, I will let the ball hit me in the face. I will not even pick my glove up if it is coming. And I will come to you and I will remove this burden from you. Now, two sports times, 10 weeks, 20 kids went through that form of torture. Please do not report me. Zero children ever called for me to put the bat down. Little bitty girls, big heavy bat, struggling. They would do that. And we'd come to our devotion time. And this was the point. That bat is like our sin. It promises us everything we want. We think it's what's going to make us stand out. It's going to validate us. It's going to put us at the top. Do you hear sex? And we get it. And the moment we get it, we think, oh no. But in our pride, we will not call out to the Savior who says at any moment you can call for me and I will relieve you of that burden. I will take it from you. I will not shame you. And yet we stand there with our sin. And it's hell, as Steve Gallagher would say. And what we need is the courage first expressed through humility to say, please take this. It is too much for me. It is something that I never should have picked up. Now, one final thought on this step. It comes from uh, Doug Rosenau. He says, adultery is often not centered on sex. Sex becomes part of it, but it may have begun as a supportive friendship, an office flirtation uh, that guaranteed ego strokes. For some, it is the thrill of the illicit, a strange sense of adventure, often the chase. After the chase is over, the excitement and attraction are gone. Sexual curiosity and frustration initiate some extramarital liaisons, um, but sex is just one of many reasons that affairs occur. 
And again, I'll make this as a passing comment. Usually within an affair, there is not nearly as much sex as what we think. But there's a whole lot of planning and anticipation and build up for every sexual encounter that there is to where if the people who were married put that much effort into thinking about and romancing and preparing for their spouse, there would be no need for an affair. But what we look at here, what is being reinforced in this step three, is that change will require us to look at our whole life. Change cannot be compartmentalized. Because what he's saying is, is it's not primarily about sex. And so, we, we have to understand our life as a whole, look at it, seeing our heart for what it is, and that takes us where we go next. 